He says, I looked and behold on Mount Zion stood the lamb and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. They were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It's these who have not defiled themselves with women for their virgins. It's these who follow the lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits from God and the lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found. They're blameless. So you come to the end of that section, you say they're singing. Verse 3, singing a new song. Uh, verse 6, I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, every nation, tribe, language, and people. He said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and the springs of water. Another angel, second, followed, saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who has made all the nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger. He will be tor tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast in its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds followed them. Then I looked and behold a white cloud and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who had its authority over the fire, and he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are, white, are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. So we'll move through these last three little sections quickly. Uh, the lamb and the 144,000. This is the people of God worshiping the lamb because they've been redeemed. We met the 144,000 back in chapter 7. Remember John heard a number and he saw a multitude. And those were the same group of people. He heard a number. When he turned, he saw a multitude. It's the full measure of God's people. John tells us here that they're sealed, just like they were sealed back in chapter 7. The beast marks his people. God seals his people. He describes them as virgins. That's a common image in apocalyptic language to talk about purity. These are people who have not defiled themselves by worshiping idols. They're not faithless Israel, idolatrous Israel. 
but they're faithful, they're virgins, they follow the Lamb wherever He goes, and they're singing. They're singing a new song. Uh, that's an important idea. So the people of God worship the Lamb because they've been redeemed. Next, the angelic messengers. There's three of them. And this is the people of God proclaiming the gospel to a sinful, wicked, dying world. I know that in the vision, the angels are doing the proclaiming. But I think what John's describing is the people of God worshiping and the people of God proclaiming the gospel. Uh, I would remind you of chapter 10. Eat the scroll and prophesy. 1,260 days. Two witnesses. We said that's the people of God testifying and witnessing for 1,260 days, 42 months. That's the people of God bearing witness to the truth. This is, I think, a picture of the people of God preaching. Remember, the churches in Revelation, real churches with people, and these letters are written to the angels of the churches. These angels are connected with the churches, and I think all of that's in play here. Uh, three angels, three gospel proclamations, fear God, Babylon has fallen, and then the wrath of the Lamb has come. Um, so, people of God are worshiping, they're singing, they're proclaiming the gospel. Thirdly, lastly, in this chapter is the final judgment. The people of God are saved in the grain harvest, and those who dwell on the earth are punished in the grape harvest. I think there's two pictures of harvest here. Both with this word sickle that plays double duty. This word sickle could refer to a big sickle that would be used in a grain harvest, a big large blade that you would hold in your hand. And I think that's the gathering of God's people. They're gathered and there's nothing said uh, when he swings this sickle in verse 16, the earth was reaped. There's nothing said about a judgment. But then secondly, another sickle shows up and this is a little bitty short knife. You can Google it and find the images used to harvest grape clusters. And you reach in there to the vine and you use this little curved blade. It's also a sickle. And you pluck these grapes off. But the grapes are plucked and they're taken to a wine press where they're smashed down. And they're smashed in the wrath and the fury of God. So I think two different harvests are being described here. Um, he talks about blood flowing from this wine press. 1,600 stadia. That's uh, 184 miles. And people try to pull all kinds of uh, geography. Where's, where's the blood flowing? How high is it flowing? And they measure it in the horse and all the stuff. And I don't think you're to take any of that literally, but I do think you're to take it seriously. And 1600 stadia is 40 squared. And I think John's saying to you, it's going to be bad. It's going to be way bad. It's going to be worse than your literal 184-mile river of blood, whatever. It's going to be horrific, absolutely horrific uh, when this judgment is poured out. But notice those gathered in the, the grain harvest, they don't experience this. Why? Because in the garden, Jesus drank the cup for his people. They don't have to drink this cup. But those who dwell on the earth are drinking this cup. Guthrie says it, I think it's a shocking way to describe it. What a contrast, verse 1 to 5, showed those marked by Christ enjoying perfect security in Mount Zion, singing, celebrating. Here in 9 to 11, we see those who have been marked by the imposter, 
who believed his false promises and fell for his charm, gagging and spitting as they drink the wine of God's wrath. Uh, I'll let you read the quotes there from Hamilton and Mounts. And I'll make one last point before we get to the conclusion. Um, all of these cycles we've gone through in Revelation have taken you all the way to the end. We talked about the seals. They went all the way to the end. And we talked about the references with the peals of thunder and all the rest. The seals, the trumpets, the bowls, they all go to this end, this vision where God shows up in judgment. This section also goes to the end, to the return of Jesus, one coming on the clouds like a son of man. And all of these references here you can trace out on your own. John is describing the same period of history from different perspectives. And the perspective in this one is here's visions of conflict that you can expect in between the ascension of Jesus and the return of Jesus. Conflict with the people of God. Conflict with this beast from the sea. Conflict with this beast from the land. Uh, the lamb and his people are worshiping and they're proclaiming and there's this final judgment. All these visions of conflict piling up on each other describing the same general period here. So, conclusion. We'll go through these quickly. What do we do with this? Satan is real. He hates the triune God. He wants to be God. He wants to destroy God's people. Uh, Shriner's right. It's easy to forget what is real in the world. In our day-to-day -day lives of mundane routine and jobs and work and wake up and go to bed and mow the lawn and take care of the kids and all the rest, it's easy to forget that you live in this period where John has pulled back the curtain and showed you the war that's taking place. And it's just good to remember, Satan is real. He hates God. He hates you. He wants to destroy you. Next, Satan is a defeated enemy who has always been and will always be subject to the sovereignty of God. And I gave you this little Greek phrase, edothe autoi. It shows up throughout Revelation. It shows up numerous times in chapter 13 when you read about the beast from the sea and the beast from the land. It literally means it was given. And it's a passive verb in the Greek. And it's John's way of saying the enemy has power, but it's been given to him by God. It's not his by right. God is allowing these things to happen. God is completely in control and he's sovereign. None of the plans of Satan come to fruition in any of what we just read. Like the conflict is horrible. And at times, the people of God are subject to that, and they're defeated, and they're struck down, and they're killed. But none of his plans ultimately come to pass in the grand scheme of things. He doesn't kill the Messiah, and he doesn't eventually finally kill the woman, and he's not able to do any of the things that he sets out to do. He doesn't win the war in the heavenly places. He's disarmed. Uh, he's subject to the sovereignty of God. The death, burial, and resurrection and ascension of Jesus were the decisive victory over death and evil. I think Schreiner has a great summary of it. Previously, Satan could legitimately accuse believers in God's presence because of their sin. But now that sins are cleansed and forgiven through the cross, he has no grounds for accusation, has no standing or place in the presence of God. In response to satanic evil in the world, the people of God are called to do what? 
What are we called to do? I'm going to give these to you quick, and you can trace them out in the text. Number one, we trust the blood of the Lamb. Revelation 12, they overcome by the blood of the Lamb. Not their own good deeds, but the blood of the Lamb. Secondly, they bear witness to the gospel story right there in 1211. Number three, we love Jesus more than life itself. Verse 11 says, they love not their lives even unto death. Fourthly, they endure in believing the gospel. You see this in 13 and 14. Just endure. Endure. Keep believing. Keep holding to the truth. Five, they refuse to compromise with the world. They don't take the mark. They don't just go along with the program to make their lives easier. They refuse to compromise. And lastly, they gather with the people of God for worship and preaching. That's what chapter 14 describes, the worship of God's people and the preaching of the gospel. This is my favorite quote from the whole section, just practically speaking. If worship is not a waste of time for the Lamb, it can't be for us. When we gather together on a Sunday, we go in the same room, we sing the same songs, pretty much. I say the same thing pretty much every week. And we just do it over and over and over and over again. We just keep doing it. And on a pragmatic, human, American level, at some point you look at that and you think, what are we doing? We sang this song last week. Jake, pick a new song for crying out loud. Learn a new song. Preacher said the same thing. He talked about God's holiness, talked about our sin, talked about Jesus on the cross, talked about repent and believe, hold to the truth, the Bible's true. We say the same thing every week. Sing the same songs over and over and over again. And it's not a waste. It looks like one thing on a human level. But just like John pulls back the curtain on these governments and their power and these false religions and false prophets and their deception, he also pulls back the curtain in chapter 14 and says, this is a beautiful thing. It's the people of God singing a new song. No one on the earth can sing it. Those who dwell on the earth don't know this song. They don't even like the song. They don't want anything to do with the song, but the people of God sing the song, and the Lamb likes the song. So he keeps singing the song. And you go out and you proclaim the truth of the gospel. There is a God, and you should fear Him, and He's going to bring judgment on the earth. And you'd better understand the truth about who the Lamb is, and you just keep saying it. You keep singing it. You keep saying it. It's not a waste. It's a beautiful picture. Uh, there is a blessing here, a blessing promised for those who do the things that we're called to do. If you were here, I think the very first week we looked at Revelation, I told you that there are seven, shocking, seven blessings in the book of Revelation. And this is the second one. And those are the seven. So there's a blessing here in the midst of this conflict uh, to God's people. Guthrie says it really well. I won't read the whole thing, just the first two sentences. The blessing is promised to those who die in the Lord. And for a person to die in the Lord, it requires that they lived in the Lord. So, live in the Lord. And if it comes to dying in the Lord, we'll die in the Lord. At some point, it'll come to that for all of us, to die. But we live in the Lord, we die in the Lord, and there's a blessing for that. Last, hell is real, and those who end up in hell will spend eternity separated from the blessing of the triune God. And I didn't give you a whole lot on hell here, 
although it's clearly talked about in chapter 14. We've come to the end. Jesus is coming back on the white cloud, and there's this torment that goes up forever and forever and ever. Um, notice it happens in the presence of the angels and who? Yeah, so all the popular ideas about hell being the place where Satan's in control and tormenting people, hogwash. I mean, it's nonsense. Wipe that stuff away. This is the Lamb, sovereign over the punishment of the wicked, and it's a good and it's a just thing. Um, we'll just end with this quote from Poitras. I think he says it well. The idea of endless torment is abhorrent to modern Western sensibilities. It troubles many Christians as well as non-Christians and has caused not a few in our day to look for some escape from the apparent meaning of these verses. We must let God be God. He knows what He is doing when He displays justice. We must therefore take the teaching of Revelation seriously. We must reckon with the fact that God is indeed a God of justice and of punishment for evil. Only by repenting and turning to Christ can one escape from hell. So we'll end with that. God, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you for this pulling back of the curtain so that we can be reminded of what is real in the world and in conflict and uh, in the heavenly places and in our lives. Um, God, we pray that you would make us men who endure, men of faith, men of witness, uh, men of worship and singing, men of proclamation. God, we pray for our kids, our families, our church, our friends, uh, for those who do not know the truth about Jesus. And our prayer is that you might use us in some way to bring them to a saving knowledge of the truth and that they might escape the horror of what we've read about in Revelation 14. Lord, even as we pray that, we agree with your people in Revelation 6 as they pray for for justice to be done. And we know that you are a God of justice and righteousness. Uh, and we agree with Abraham, who many, many years ago prayed that he was confident that the Lord of all the earth would do what is right. So we pray that uh, we would be humble as we read difficult things in the Bible, not to question them, not to try to explain them away, not to uh, simply deny the truthfulness of your word, but to submit to it and to believe it and to allow it to change us and to shape us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.